In this episode of the Permaculture Podcast, co-host David Bilbrey sits down for a group interview with the co-founders of Propagate Ventures, Ethan, Jeremy, and Harry. Together they share how they bring agroforestry to existing farms using direct investment. Through these efforts, they also show that farming, agriculture, and regenerative business hold a place in the portfolio of the investment class, allowing those who practice earth care to take advantage of the resources that might not be available to them otherwise. Enjoy this conversation, and I'll join you again after with some additional information and updates. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with EcoThinkIt.com and the Permaculture Podcast, and my guests today are the three co-founders of Propagate Ventures, Ethan Steinberg, Jeremy Kaufman, and Harry Green. I met these guys at Region 18 Conference in San Francisco, and I just have to say that uh, during the networking and hanging out between sessions, you guys had the best energy and presence, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. For starters, tell me a bit about Propagate Ventures. What is it, and uh, how did it start? Propagate Ventures is an agroforestry asset management company. What that means is we're particularly focused on putting trees into existing farmland in tandem with existing operations. And then kind of how we got started was the last two and a half years or so, we did a lot of travel around the country in the Midwest, Northeast, kind of looking for where there was kind of an opportunity for us to find ways for the right kinds of capital to provide the value in a transition toward regenerative agriculture system. And a lot of that stemmed from looking out at the landscape of regenerative agriculture and finding that there were certain things that were kind of working and certain things that, that weren't. Um, and where we landed in that research was really looking at trees as an asset class. It's something that across many of the farms we went and saw, there wasn't really the capital available for farms and landowners to actually be able to invest in the long-term systems of tree crops um, that a lot of them wanted to. So that's why, why we kind of targeted that as our intervention point. That's kind of the origin story. And, and David, the key, the key there, I think, is really, for us, finding ways to make it financially viable to add tree crops to operational farms. So looking really at fruit and nut and timber um, and how those work in tandem with livestock, row crop, uh, and specialty crop operations. So you guys are, are working with people who have not had these type of crops on their property before or kind of both types of people? Everything that we're focused on is moving pasture land or row crop land into integrated production systems with tree pasture. For us, a lot of the folks that we're working with are either farms that are being hayed and don't necessarily have day-to-day operations going on, through to farms that have a full-scale grain operation, full-scale animal production system. And looking at across all of that spectrum where trees play a role given the existing production system that they're already operating on. So I'd imagine it sounds like you're doing quite a bit of education at the front end of this with your clients. Um, what does that look like? Yeah, so the the first step to figuring out what kind of tree system best fits the goals and operations and, and desires of, of a client is to work through what we call our, our subsoil audit. And the, the first step of that, it works through what is essentially the holistic management process. So holistic goal setting and context development. And then from there, when we can kind of gauge what kind of tree system best fits with that operator's context then we'll uh, work in uh, the, the educational component in terms of what we think will, will best fit their land. Is that the holistic management sort of process that uh, Alan Savory created with um, Savory Institute? It's exactly that. And for the, for the folks listening, just to differentiate between holistic management and holistic planned grazing, uh, holistic planned grazing is grazing that utilizes the holistic management framework, but Holistic management is a decision-making process that's that's broadly applicable to uh, all sorts of endeavors. 
That's really interesting to hear. I've interviewed some folks that do the work with Alan Savory and do it on the uh, grazing side. And I'm kind of wondering and asking them about how much trees are involved. And sometimes they're not at all. And sometimes they are. But it seems like that should always be a part of even the rotational grazing, you know, sort of setup. I mean, do you guys have any insight on why there's not more attention to trees in the in a lot of the folks that are doing the rotational grazing? Yeah, absolutely. So if if we just kind of look back to when those grazing and, and grain operations of the Midwest started, a lot of that land was just uh, cleared when the frontier moved west. But a, a major benefit of reintegrating trees into the landscape it is, is shelter for livestock. So just shade from trees alone can increase weight gain in extreme heat by up to 1.2 pounds per day on cows. So I say, I say cows because that's not the steer number or the, um, the calf number, but the, uh, the, the breeding cows themselves. So um, that and along with winter weather, harsh winds. Um, so beyond the say, timber value that you get in a silvopasture system, you can actually improve weight gain on cattle. So why do you think it isn't uh, as widely adopted amongst the rotational grazing folks? It adds complexity to the system. So there's always that factor. A lot of the places that folks are really focused on grazing are on less treed or non-treed landscapes. So if we look at uh, Western Kansas or Eastern Colorado, it's harder to establish trees out there unless you get down to the riversides and you're planting lots of cottonwood. But it's it's just, it's a little bit different and a little bit less culturally traditional than it is in, in, in the East here to, to add trees to a farm. That makes sense. And I suppose too, in a, in a ramp up phase, the cost of, of trees might be something that'd be prohibitive for some people. So that gives some context. Thank you. So let's step back a little bit and talk about you guys. Uh, how did you meet? Oh, there's a good story there. Um, Jeremy and I, this is Ethan, uh, went to university together, so we've known each other, kind of bumped into each other on the second day or so, walking around campus trying to figure out what we were doing with our lives. Uh, so Jeremy and I have known each other for a while, and Jeremy and Harry were actually connected via one of Jeremy's close childhood friends. And when we kind of all came together, we had various pathways to into agriculture, Around kind of two areas is like one being on farm, but the other in our relationship to food. Uh, I know Harry, Harry was training uh, for the Olympics for a portion of his life. So the kind of caloric value uh, and athletic performance of came together pretty quickly around the concept of food. And remember Jeremy was fell ill during college and uh, pulled himself out of illness by reframing his relationship to food and what he was consuming. Uh, and for me, uh, I'm diabetic, so I kind of graced with the uh, gift of making sure I know what I'm eating. So between the three of us, we, we had all come together around this, this idea that food can actually be really healthy, uh, so as much as it's also healthy for the earth. And then kind of moving through that, it was like, well, great, what's the opportunity for us uh, as a team to find ways to make that more widely applicable across farms in the United States and, and inevitably across, across the world. Um, and and what are, what's, what's that relationship to especially perennial crops and perennialized landscapes? Um, and that's kind of what's moved us through the, the, the day-to-day thus far, looking at what are those trim tabs um, in the financial system that can help us trigger towards much more productive uh, and healthy landscapes. So, so you guys are all friends first, and you sort of created Propagate out of uh, looking for something you could do together in the world to, to make it a better place. That's great. Yeah, I, I think the friendship always was very action-oriented also. Okay, great. Well, thanks for sharing uh, your personal life a little bit there. So uh, at the top here, I think it'd probably be good as well to have you guys sort of define agroforestry and talk a little bit about what that is. Yeah, so... Agroforestry is the strategic integration of crops and trees. Uh, that can be adding crops to an existing forest or 
adding trees to existing cropland. Uh, it ranges anywhere from growing ginseng in the woods, which is a practice called forest farming, into what we do, uh, which centers on adding trees to operational farms. So that can range anywhere from adding timber tree systems to large grain or, or dairy farms to adding shrub fruit to smaller organic vegetable farms. And we kind of break that out into, at least for, at least for us and for our context, into three different forms of agroforestry. So one being alley cropping, and we can, we can explain each of these. Alley cropping, um, silvopasture, and then this other piece that we're also looking at, which is essentially orchard bands. Yeah, so so alley cropping, it's the integration of tree crops, so permanent crops uh, that could be shrubs through to apple trees, through to timber trees with an annual yield, which could be grain or, or vegetables or, say, asparagus. So asparagus and apples is a great alley cropping system out of a farm called Good Life Farm in Interlochen, New York. And then it goes uh, anywhere from there to um, integrating wheat and poplar in France and, and parts of Europe. So, and then silvopasture is simply the, the integration of trees and grazing livestock. So that can be adding grazing, adding cattle or small ruminants to the woods or adding poultry to orchards or integrating tree crops onto grazing land. And then orchard bands are simply, uh, simply traditional orchards in belts and bands across the landscape to kind of break up the monotony. Okay, great. That's helpful. And um, for the listeners on PropagateVentures.com, they have a tab agroforestry and actually has some illustrations of these different uh, things that he just descri- described. So that's uh, it's helpful to have a graphic sometimes. Good. So why is agroforestry important? Yeah, so ecologically, agroforestry does things like sequester carbon and filter farm runoff and increase biodiversity because it it takes advantage of the vertical space on a farm and adding that structural diversity creates biodiversity and uh, and also income diversity. So the, the figure we like to, to cite is that combining trees and grain is 140% as profitable as growing them in isolation. And that number comes from both uh, the folks in France and some, some folks in Missouri in that if you grow grain and a timber plantation separately, you'll have N net income. And then if you put them together, you do lose some grain yield and you might lose some timber timber yield, although you do get larger, wider, better trees. But the net income on the whole, so the profit what you take home is 1.4x growing the systems at, at 1.4x that of the, the system separately. And that, uh, that additional income creates uh, essentially jobs and just more economic diversity across the rural landscapes of the United States and and elsewhere. Now, does that apply the same, whether it's conventional ag or um, organic and more holistic ag? Every farm is different. Every system is specific. But I would say, yes, it it wouldn't discriminate between conventional and organic, that, that increase in productivity. And those numbers, as worth noting, are based off of the integration of timber crops into uh, row crops. And when you start looking and start at the numbers that are coming off of permanent crops, so fruit and nut species, the per acre net income actually can be much higher than 1.4x. Timber is kind of the lower baseline of that integration. And there's kind of more context added to those kind of profitability numbers looking at, as Jerry was saying, the different crop types you might look at, but also the different bioregions you'd be operating in, um, depending on essentially how quickly things grow. Um, so if we look at the tropics, things grow a little bit quicker. So your kind of path to profitability also looks a little bit different, um, essentially more favorable in, in the tropics because of how quickly things grow. But there, you're also 
limited to the type of species in certain bioregions based off of um, what's native. Is there a uh, is there a scale that uh, is a scale specific? Does it need to be a certain size of a farm, or will it will it work on any scale? Yeah, so there is a certain unit economic level where different expenses make sense. So if you think about managing on an acre, being able to buy the, the scale of an acre growing in like an apple orchard, um, you, bringing buying a tractor might not make as much sense as using, say, something like a smaller implement, like a PCS. And as you start to scale, different cap, capital expenditures become more viable. Um, so it really, it's scalable at the unit level down to a small farm, but it all depends on the scope. For us as an organization, we're looking mostly in the U.S. at farms that are probably about 100 or 150 acres plus. So as a, as a means of converting conventional farmers over to more holistic practices, this is a great doorway and sort of a solution to uh, doing that? We certainly hope so. Yeah, I think part of it is we want to increase the equity in the system and increase the capacity for those who really work with these systems, uh, our farmers and our farm partners to have access to that equity and, and kind of specifically at a time right now in the U S when uh, the cost of land or to purchase land is really high and um, which makes it really difficult. And there's a bit of a bottleneck there for, for uh, young farmers to get engaged and really creating those incentives um, financially from an equity perspective, we think is wildly important uh, specifically as we kind of keep looking forward to, how will we manage our landscapes over the course of time? And how long ago did Propagate Ventures begin? The kind of their research has been about two and a half years now, and in terms of for the company, we've been pretty much operational for about two years total. A half a year was really a lot of travel, just kind of doing that kind of the base ground research. Well, can you talk a little bit about uh, one or two of your projects? Give us some details on what that looks like on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. So I think first we can jump into our, our first agroforestry hub, which is it's 25 acres in Hudson, New York. And that project, it, it looks a lot like a key line shrub fruit and tree fruit orchard. So that's just, uh, say, currants, blueberries, apples, and, and, and some chestnuts. All in a, it's it's a it's a polycultural layout, but it's it's not too excessive. Um, so say every eighth row of tree or shrub fruit will be a, a row of biodiversity, and then just next to that project, we have a contract to plant out the riparian zones on another farm, and that that's going to amount to about thirty three thousand trees across twenty three hundred acres of organic grain and grass fed beef. So what is this what do these projects look like? So like kind of give me walk me through kind of your your process from start to full implementation. So the the process starts with an audit. This project started with uh, a landowner that's up here in the Hudson Valley. It's a, it's a 2300 acre farm and we looked at, through that audit to find the opportunities for the integration of trees within the landscape. That audit process looks like a design process around where the, where those trees would go, um, going through to the economics of the actual tree yields that would be going in the ground. And then from there, we have two programs that we, work, that we have within actually being able to do the deployment. Across the 2,300 acres, the windbreaks and riparian zones is using our taproot program, which is a paid installments program to, to do stage deployment um, over time, uh, given the budget constraints of the, of the farm. So that can be anywhere from three to seven years in terms of deploying trees across a landscape. And that's going to be the 33,000 trees. And then we identified about 25 acres on that same farm that is really ripe for some of the orchard banding that we're looking at. So that 25 acres we're taking on in our evergreen model, where we actually come in and own and operate the trees on their land 
and then have a profit share partnership with the landowner where they're actually gaining a percentage of the yield. The difference between the systems is that we're on the taproot side. We actually sell the system to the landowner over those installments. On the evergreen side, we're coming in as the operator. We own the trees, operate the trees, and then provide cash flow to a landowner through the revenues that are coming off of those trees. So you've got a bit of liability on the evergreen level because you're putting putting a lot of money up up front. Yeah, so the, the evergreen model is predicated on kind of the concept of separating the ownership of the trees from the land itself. And there are some legal frameworks around that that is analog, very similar to what is done in the solar industry. So we, the, the way in which the solar industry works is they are able to actually deploy solar panels on land that they don't own and provide a profit share partnership with the landowner that where revenues actually can, can flow back to the landowner if they're giving them access to that land. So it's very much modeled off that same process. And the liability is less so in putting trees in the ground. The liability is more so in the productivity of those trees and meeting expectations. So how do you evaluate a property to decide whether it's one that you want to do this on? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so our, our whole model is predicated on a, on a hub-based system. So we have a hub here in the Northeast in Hudson Valley. So everything around that hub pretty much qualified. The only exception there is the property has to be relatively low risk in terms of risk of sale. It gives us the ability to have more longer term uh, land security. But when we're looking outside of the Northeast right now, what we're really looking for are additional hubs to be built out um, similar to the one we have here. And that's kind of the first real filter for ever for qualifying for the Evergreen project. So tell me more about the hub. What, what does that entail? The hub is, entails kind of a combination of production and research and, tra- and education for being able to train people in managing agroforestry systems at the unit level to be able to scale them up in the region. And that's what uh, the hub, everything's built around being able to train more and more agroforesters. So how many projects do you need in a specific region to, to start a hub? It's a, it's a combination of projects that are needed right now versus where the, the future potential is given that region. So here in the Hudson Valley, it's very rich with land opportunities that provide potential for production. And that, that scales differently within every region we're looking at. So if we're looking in the Midwest or in the Southeast region, if we're looking at something like timber in the Southeast, um, we're looking at something like nut production in the Midwest or fruit production here in the Northeast. It really depends on what we're targeting as being the crop types that are the most viable in those places. So as far as the evergreen level where you guys are um, paying for and installing all of the trees and managing them, how do, how do you finance that? A big piece of this of that portion of our model is kind of focused around building direct investment opportunities for investors. And we're... We're mostly looking in the world of family offices, foundations, active in kind of the PRI front, and then the impact investment universe, um, moving through kind of these product level opportunities uh, and direct investments uh, that help us uh, and uh, help us work with, with our farm partners to deploy those agroforestry systems. Once those systems are, are moving, uh, we have essentially different waterfalls where those investors uh, are being paid back by the sale of those crops, what those yields are. That in, in, in time is we're actually going to be building fund structures that allow us to raise more capital to, to deploy across multiple products. So uh, as we move over time, we move into doing more mass and manageable um, and being able to raise funds around this as well. I would imagine as you have more more history and more projects, more of a track record, that's going to make the finance part of it easier. I, to get a feel for what that looks like without you giving specific numbers on projects, you tell me what the scale would be, 25 acres, 100 acres, what it would be. What's kind of a, what kind of a cost is involved? The typical number for orchards is about 10K per acre in terms of expense for total capitalization requirement. So on that 25 acres, it's about 250k, and that covers the expense through to the actual production of those. That changes relative to where you are and 
what you're putting in the ground. But generally speaking, that's a good benchmark. And then as far as the taproot level where the, the farmer is paying you guys to put this system in, what's kind of the range of um, financial layout for them and time to start to get returned? Totally. So the with taproot projects, the number of species that can go into the system can be a, we, we, there's a little bit, we, we allow the a little bit more of the ability for you to choose more diversity. Because uh, because you're buying the asset, you can design, help co-design the system a little bit more. So there's a little bit wider variety there. That being said, it's really rooted in a combination of things, which is the price per unit of the tree stock and the kind of the all the technical services that that go from design through to installation uh, on that project. And it's custom given the size and scope of a given, of a given project. So if, if you're putting in a bunch of apple trees versus putting in Willow, the cost is, is variable, different, very different because the price of those are different um, depending on the project. Sure, and I would imagine depending on the experience level of the farmer and whether they've maybe they've been orchardists and have a history with that, that's going to affect what they actually need as well. So it's pretty customizable. Yeah, exa- exactly right. The whole the whole goal of the taproot program is to bundle it into something that is very transparent and allows you to pay for it over a set term. And I like the idea of, you know, they got a thousand acres or whatever, but they can kind of test this out on 25 acres or a hundred acres and just kind of see how it does compared to what they've been doing with their conventional farming. That's a really great way for them to kind of get their feet wet without a huge, uh, you know, huge investment or liability. We're always trying to look for essentially what are the, what are the opportunity areas on a piece of land and what's the context, what's happening operationally with that farm. And kind of where then are the opportunity areas that can be work in tandem with what's happening? And that allows us to navigate different crop types and different designs to support goals around ecosystem function and economic function. Yeah, I really, I really like your model. Um, how did you guys come up with this model? Because it's, it's pretty unique. A really long night with too much beer. <laughs> really? Just one night? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think a, a lot of it stemmed from traveling across the Midwest and Northeast to different farms and asking them what the constraints were to either establishing tree crops. Uh, were they tree crop farms or what the barriers were to entry in terms of adding trees to their farms? And the, the, the number one roadblock was the initial capital expenditures um, and figuring out a way to discount all of the future value that tree crops produce to the present and, and use our, our finance backgrounds and, and apply all of that that prior knowledge to tree crops and specifically agroforestry. That was a um, that was the opportunity area and th- th- these programs are, are just what emerged out of that. I think on top of that, I think the one of the key kind of models that we really looked at closely was the early days of the solar industry and taking a look at what really provided the opportunity for that to grow as an asset class. And the metaphor of trees and solar being kind of a, having similar types of timeframes in the landscape, they're definitely different in terms of as an, as an, the productivity of those, provided a good substructure for how we applied some of those rules from our travel. And for, for the listener that want to just go back, uh, I'm looking at your, your website. So we just want to go back and give these categories again. So subsoil is basically an agroforestry audit. The taproot is plant to plant, uh, plan to plant establishment. So that's where the, you're, they're paying you for a variety of services and perhaps the trees. And then the evergreen is the profit share partnership where you're going in. There's no cost to the farmer you are buying, planting, and managing the trees. But they do have buyout options and some things involved there. So someone can get involved with this with no money up front and then have the option 10 years down the road of buying it out and, and owning all of that uh, if they chose? Yep, exactly right. So the, the whole idea of, the, of it is the systems become a little bit more liquid so that way they can actually be bought out by the landowner themselves. In 10 years down the line, they decide they want to operate their chestnut orchard they can do so just by 
enacting the buyout option. Is it a matter of just sort of taking their profit share and directing it back towards you guys over time to buy it out? Or how does that, what does that look like? That's a, a part of it. It's depending on the project, their profit share may not cover the total price, but it definitely can be applied within that same, within the price. The better you guys do your job, the the, <laughs> the less likely the profit share alone will cover it if you've created a huge uh, value there. That's great. <laughs> so I think I interrupted one of you. Go ahead. No, no, I was, I was just going to briefly say that uh, the, the equity piece that I had mentioned earlier is exactly what you're, you're kind of pointing out here is that's, that's part of the thinking of how do we make sure that's constantly incorporated? How do we essentially stay creative and nimble with the way that we can finance this and operate agroforestry systems over a period of time to, to allow kind of that, that, that equity, if you will, to be included in the model. And I can see this really building on itself over time for you guys, because as you have people start to buy out, then you've got more capital to work with to to implement on new projects. So that, you know, 5, 10, 15 years into this, it gets more and more interesting. So do you, how far have you projected your plan? It's, I mean, it's, a, it's constantly shifting, uh, but everything that we is modeled off of a 20-year timeline on a given project. And... What, but what about the, what's your timeline for Propagate Ventures? Do you have how far out have you looked? At this stage, we're looking as an organization to ten years forward for being able to raise more, having a certain kind of stage of different funds that we'll be raising over the course of those ten years, which support well beyond twenty years of operations. There's a piece there is also looking at how do we create value for the next seven generations. And for the three of us, at least being very cognizant of the the idea here that some of the agroforestry pieces we're putting into play as of today, we might not be alive to see them come fully into fruition, which and being comfortable with that and essentially the organization of Propagate staying on to manage productive assets that serve an ecological function. We'll see the currents, but we, we might not see the black walnuts if fate uh, <laughs> finds us too soon. Right. So, I mean, are you building, are you, your intention to build Propagate to be an organization that will be around for 500 years or 1,000 years? Oh, yes. Just like the Grateful Dead. I think that's, that's key to our ethos. The goal is to be able to extend how long we can make commitments to being able to match steward landscapes toward productive um, and ecologically friendly outcomes and with a keen eye on kind of the limitations of growth the piece there of like scale too fast scale too aggressively uh, a lot of what you hear about in like the startup community so there's, there's all those components of which we're looking at essentially managing that value over time at the end of the day we, we are talking about planting trees so there's a certain level of patience that goes along with that right yeah i've planted some trees uh, on my own property in the last several years for the first time in my life. And I, I love it, but it does teach you patience because that first year or two, <laughs> you know, you don't see as much growth as you want to, but then they hit points where they just really start to take off. And so it's a, it's a really satisfying thing to do, but it is a different timeline for sure than most anything else in our modern lives. It's a funny thing when in the early ages of fruit trees, um, you actually are supposed to take off the flowers because you're you want to actually concentrate the energy of the tree into growth. And uh, it's it's interesting thing as a fruit tree starts to grow, you you get excited that it might fruit in your in year two or year three. But being patient actually pays off. Well, that's a good tip. I have three cherry trees I planted, and I had cherries on them for the very first time this year. And uh, the birds ate most of them. I ate some of them. They were delicious, but. Next year, maybe it'd be better to take the blossoms off. Like, how how long would you want to do that to give that energy for growth before you start to harvest? In your holistic context, yeah. If you want to eat some sweet cherries and you from your yard, I would say leave the cherries. I, I have a few <laughs> pears in, in my yard that fruited in year three, and I was and I just I just wanted to be Asian pears, so I decided not to take. Them. You know what I like about what you guys are doing is. You're implementing and really teaching regenerative practice on the land, but the structure of your business is a regenerative business structure as well. So you've got 
you're operating on several different levels of of these ideas. And so how much of the aspect of education is intended as part of your business model being that the people that are involved with you guys are, are really getting an education on how, what regeneration is and how to do it. I mean, we kind of covered a little bit about what that looks like on the farm side and, and through the hubs and the way we, the way we frame it at the moment is essentially looking at kind of various stakeholder groups. So we have our, Farm-based stakeholders, these are farm partners and the farms we work with. Um, we have the investment stakeholder group, which is really looking through some of those investment communities. And then on the other side, you know, this last stakeholder group would be that of brands, um, uh, I guess consumer brands and uh, mostly food companies. And that kind of stretches retailers and grocers, as well as those creating packaged goods. Essentially, the education piece is looking kind of at a multitude of things there. We, from a, from a cultural perspective of, of what is regeneration and, and how are we aligned from a body, uh, mind, and spirit perspective, and then kind of what's the interaction with humans as a species and that of the natural world kind of at a point in time when those two things haven't really been closely aligned. The natural world and Humanity seems to have had a little bit of kind of this contention and have led us up to where we are today, which can be terrifying, but also provides a lot of opportunity. So for us on the educational front, it's about kind of reframing our relationship with land and focusing on where food plays a role there. Everyone I know seems to enjoy good food and, and, and good drink. So that and people enjoy being clothed, and so food, fuel, fiber, those things are produced on in, in agriculture. Kind of the root of that word, agra and culture. You kind of understand there's there's a deep relationship there between hum, humans and, and the landscape. And so on the educational piece, we're always looking at connecting those dots. Um, we have all these different organizations, whether they're for profit or nonprofit, that kind of feed into each other and connect those dots. And so for us on the educational front, we're, we're doing things like aggregating news stories from folks all over the, the, the web that have been writing. Um, we've been writing a little bit of our own stuff. Harry just, Harry just wrote up an article the other week about um, how do we take some of the learnings from tropical, uh, syntropic agriculture and bring that to temperate climate zones. So what is like a temperate climate, syntropic agriculture system look like. So that's a piece of the education. And then constantly rethinking about how do we interact with, with food? How do we make food? And where does that play a role in kind of the for-profit ecosystem? Different product lines and innovating on new value-add products on, on land. I think you're seeing all sorts of stuff there in the natural foods industry as well. And, and also how we deal with fiber. And there, there's a lot of movement there. So it's a bit on the educational piece. And at the end of the day, we're kind of also kind of constantly upgrading our thinking and educating ourselves. Uh, that's part of the puzzle. We certainly are not the owner of the answers. If anything, we're mostly just trying to translate things so they make more sense, at least for today's context. A lot of it's kind of ancient wisdom that we're blessed to access. So kind of following on the education theme, um, documentation and science over time. Are you guys actively documenting what you're doing? Are you testing soil fertility and the different factors like that on the properties where you're doing projects? Uh, what does that piece look like? Yeah, so the number one thing we're measuring is profit at the end of the day. So whether Sudan grass or imported mulch adds more organic matter to the system or more fertility or whether a certain uh, effective microbe spray activates or, or doesn't activate a specific set of, of bacteria or fungi. It's all important, but if it doesn't result in greater yields within the uh, ecological constraints of organic and, and beyond organic, it's not at the forefront. But that being said, uh, we do work with partners in, in a carbon lab with one of the farms we're working at. 
So the, it's called the Hudson Carbon Project. And they're monitoring soil carbon with both cores and with, uh, with drone imagery to correlate fertility and yields with soil carbon. And I'll add a bit to that is we're pretty cognizant of, of the value of the ecology um, and what's happening above ground and below ground. We're always evaluating and looking at opportunities to collect uh, and understand that data and be able to match that with creating essentially more attractive investment opportunities in agroforestry-based asset class. Getting there requires, just like you're saying, uh, a kind of a lot of this scientific input and data collection over time that kind of continues to add value to the, the total system of looking at how agroforestry fits, how it's economically viable, um, and where the, the, the science and the data showcases that we're actually really strengthening uh, the capacity of our ecosystem. So I just, a thought just came to mind. I was thinking about a conversation I had with Joel Solomon, who is in the finance side of regenerative uh, business, and he was talking about the number of well, he's talking about the amount of dollars that are going to be changing hands in the next 20 or 30 years. And it's many trillions um, that he hopes to put to use in regenerative practices. If someone was, if it was a, someone had a family member or themselves that had a farm and they were too old to maintain it anymore, could they just basically do your, you know, your highest level and just have that taken over and you guys just manage that land and they, they can pass on the assets to their children if, once they pass on? kind of a succession plan? Definitely. I mean, I think, I think Joel's right. And, and we really enjoy chatting with Joel. He's, he's really got his mind wrapped around some of this stuff and kind of always appreciate his insight. I think the short answer is yes, is that there's always an opportunity there. We're definitely looking at some, some projects here in the Hudson that kind of have a similar story to, to what you're outlining. Some projects that stem back hundreds of years uh, and have been in families for, for a long time, which is, which is really cool to kind of have that historical context and have that lineage of what's been going on on the farm. And for us, we're really looking at, at least on the economic side, it's like we need to be able to mitigate certain risk in terms of the management of these farms so that on the ground, there's always an opportunity to go forward and that there's, there's, there's less extraction. And that's, that's kind of a key node, right? It is moving away from something that's extractive and looking more at the things that are value add. And that includes how we're navigating landscapes, how we're managing our relationships is interpersonally. So we're kind of always looking at all these different opportunity areas. The, the multi-generational land use question, it's a big one. We're looking at a lot of these legacy farms that just want to breathe new life into their landscapes and just a- adding a function that, adds value to the landscape, both socially, economically, and, and ecologically. That's, that's been really appealing to these old farms um, that can recall seeing people outside working, whereas now they, they might see uh, more tractors than people. Uh, not that there aren't people in those tractors, but uh, I think that, that's understandable. And, and yeah. The more I think about this, it's an incredible opportunity. So say it's not someone necessarily at the end of life, but just they've retired and they don't have the the physical strength to manage this big broad acre property that they used to. I, I see over and over again, because I've worked with seniors uh, in the past, where they will just sell that place and move into the city closer to the hospitals and, and not because they can't they just can't even do the mowing anymore. Where with this model, they could have you guys come in, create orchards, plant crops, manage the thing, and then they've got some profit share to put back into maintaining the property and keeping it in the state that they used to be able to physically and stay out on the land much longer. Plus, I mean, what an incredible thing to see all this life being created right out of your window. So that's a really rich sort of social benefit and even have someone else come along and manage that sort of social experiment. I, I, I think there's a lot of potential there. Absolutely. And, and for us, with the leased land model, the, the business just moves that much more quickly. Uh, and we can see that in uh, other types of farming, too, whether that's green city acres growing veg on, on leased land or Greg Judy grazing on leased land or anyone who does custom grazing. Just uh, avoiding that high capital outlay allows 
anyone who's really looking to make an income and hopefully build equity from a system able to um, see a profit that much sooner. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity. I think you tapped on something really important here, which is that bringing life back to the landscape has secondary benefits beyond just the economic and environmental, but there's also social benefits. There's a bringing high quality, high margin and net production and timber management back to the landscape, plus kind of the the general well-being sense that you get when you're in a, a forested landscape. Those are kind of the secondary, like the being able to provide jobs as well as uh, well-being is a huge part of why we do that. So what are some of your bigger challenges in doing this? Yeah, it's a question we get, we get, we get pretty frequently nowadays. Um, and there's a couple different things at play. And I think we're constantly trying to figure out how to navigate that. And essentially what that looks like is given the, the, the time frame of a tree – I mean, what it takes to get that tree up and running and then to the point when it's kind of at its kind of production maturity, if you will. And that's different from woody shrubs through to fruit trees and nut trees and, and timber. And you have a full spectrum there of two to 15 plus years. And I think on the, on the creating investments front, there's a certain there, – there's, there's certainly groups in the investment community that are a bit more patient with their capital, both on the kind of – venture side and on the, the foundation side. Um, so there's kind of this, what we would classify as like short-term liquidity. And, and it's more of a concern than it is a problem. It's, it's essentially kind of what we were saying about reframing the way in which we engage with nature is a, is a piece of that. And then a lot of this is around mindsets. So I know we had mentioned uh, some of this kind of briefly while we were at uh, Regen 18 about and this this is a, a quote that we, we used there while we were in San Francisco uh, that comes from Darren Doherty of Agrarians, who's, who we're very close with. Uh, essentially, he says, changing the climate is easy. Changing the climate of the mind is the hardest part. So we have this opportunity to kind of reframe the way the ecosystems work. And we have, like I said, this kind of ancestral wisdom that helps us understand how to do so. And we have the economics to support it. It's really just a function of, uh, of activating that to really understanding what that means as a, as a society and, and how we engage with that. I mean, like for, for example, um, most people like apples. Most people kind of all have this great forgetting of what it actually takes to produce apples. And there's, there's, there's a time value there. It's very difficult. I mean, if you know anyone who's doing this, definitely let me know, but you can't put a one year old apple tree in the ground tomorrow and expect to be eating apples within three months off of that tree, um, and a lot of the a lot of the mindset shifting is around shorter term expectations, and we've kind of gone through this swing, specifically on the investment side, of really expecting those immediate returns. And while there's a ton of value there, it's not quite applicable in the context of agriculture. Um, it's certainly less applicable in the context of perennialized landscapes. So we're working through a couple of different things to help mitigate that risk, um, working with brands and buyers through longer term uh, pre-purchase agreements that help us mitigate uh, the risk by having buyer certainty. Um, we're working through different legal structures that allow us to better navigate the ownership of a tree on land. Um, so, so essentially looking at what allows us to navigate what are, are presented as challenges and, and that are really more new age challenges. They're, they're less so kind of, they're not like tail as old as time type challenges. As a species, I think humanity's figured out how to work through a lot of this. We come, we're kind of at this nodal point today, just where we are with the influx of, of heavy technology and the influx of shorter term thinking and getting access to things immediately, um, which we're not saying is a bad thing, but we are saying is we should have a better understanding of what that means. And with that in mind, that kind of helps us reframe our mindset towards these long-term assets that, I mean, as far as we look at it, trees appreciate in value over time. So if you're going to invest in something, wouldn't you invest in that versus buy a car, which depreciates an asset in, in value over time? And I know that's a huge stretch to say, 
and that kind of created a huge window there of extremes, but using a little bit to make a point there. Well, I mean, I, I thinking about the comparison between this and even solar. I mean, you put solar panels on land, great. You got you got electricity, but the solar panels are going to re- require maintenance in order to degrade over time. Trees are going to just get more valuable over time. So, I think it's a great investment and better than any depreciable asset, really. Not that you, not that solar is not important as well, but it, it's a really. There's not really a comparison because 10, 15, 20, 30 years into it, it's still the asset value is still growing. One of the things I want to note on that, one of the interesting things about trees in terms of the land value of like, associated to it, as soon as you put trees in the ground, the price per acre of that land skyrockets. But when you look at the trend over time, the value really isn't in the land appreciating in value. The value is actually in the productivity of of those trees and in the income from those trees. A lot of what we're looking at is the trees as an asset and as a productive asset. Using trees to get the initial kick in land value is is a good thing, but it's also about the longevity of those trees appreciating. So what is your guys' relationship with Regarians and with Terragenesis? Great question. Harry is actually a, a teacher on the Rex program. Be pretty active in the agrarian's workplace, um, which is their kind of platform for regenerative practitioners and farmers um, that come on and share knowledge. And we kind of work with, with Darren to kind of service the community in any way we possibly can on that platform. Um, and, and Darren is a is an advisor of ours, um, which we really uh, had a, a lot of pleasure being able to work with him uh, over the course of the last couple of years. On with TerraGenesis, our partnership is is a kind of on that frontier of working with brands in trying to shift the supply of ingredients toward regenerative farming practices. We work with them pretty closely on kind of the mechanics of how to do that from the ground level through to the brand level. Those partnerships are outlined. We we all between these groups like um, agrarians and TerraGenesis International and, and propagators. We're all very ethos aligned in what we're doing. We're all kind of speaking the same language and understanding what the context is for our landscapes. And then what we're really looking at is like, how do we continue between our organizations to have this sort of knowledge share and kind of have this knowledge commons that allows us to better serve um, the whole system of regenerative agriculture. Um, And we're all focused on different components of this larger system and so the kind of we're we're essentially looking at upgrading the capacity by by working in collaboration with each other rather than in competition. That's great. And that kind of answer is part of my question about documentation and science is it's sort of I, I like what you said about the commons sort of the knowledge commons because we do need to gather uh, as much of this information about how this is being done well so that we can accelerate the next uh, you know, the next project and the next generation's um, adaptation of this and speed it up. Because as we all know, we're at a bit of an urgent moment in history right now. We have all the tools to get there. So we feel relatively confident that the tools that help us get to a really, really, what I'll call, for lack of a better way of saying it, is, is like just being in an awesome place. Um, we have the tools to help us craft that and the tools to help us manage that. At today's point, it's a function of putting those tools to use. So, like, let's reframe our mindsets around those tools, and then and then activate it because we're, we're there, and kind of I think we're we're at that point with things that there's no reason to say no, and that's kind of the the, the frame that we're looking through. Yeah, and I think as part of that, I think everyone plays a role. There's across every stakeholder, whether you're a, just a kind of a, a customer of products through to a brand who actually selling products to end customers through to a distributor, through to a farmer, through to an investor, uh, across all of that. There's a role for everyone to play in that process. And it's just a matter of uncovering at what level they're willing to play at and what information will help them uh, to make those decisions. Another piece of this we haven't discussed is the distribution network. So you guys are obviously growing, managing the trees, but um, you also have the networks to get the trees to, uh, or the products to market and the channels to get them out into stores. How, how does that piece of it work? Yeah, that's that's mostly developed through like partnership relationships. So this is definitely a discussion we have frequently with the guys at 
Terragenesis. Uh, and that's really part of their core strength is navigating this piece of the puzzle uh, in terms of their relationships with, with, with brands, um, as well as there's different pieces of that puzzle from kind of processing and storage and distribution channels and all the logistics that go into getting that food to the grocery store you're shopping at or getting that food onto your plate. So we're, we're always looking at the opportunities to work with folks all across that spectrum in that ecosystem to help us move the needle of handling a regenerative agriculture focused agriculture system, which requires a, a little bit of movement, a little bit of tweaking of the way it works today. And that's cool. Like that's okay. It shouldn't scare people. That's an opportunity area. It's not, it's not a place to be fearful from. It's like, Oh man, we have to shake everything up. It's like, yes. And, but there's a ton of opportunity there. So with that in mind, we're, we're essentially not notching out different relationships with folks that are operating around those hubs. So like we look directly at the Hudson Valley region, we're, we're, we're actively kind of creating partnerships with folks that are in that ecosystem to help the food that's being produced in the Hudson Valley to hit the closest markets, which like New York City being one of them, right? So that huge group of folks in New York City that would otherwise be a great opportunity to connect organic apple production up in the Hudson Valley. So starting to look at these things and then working with different folks within that ecosystem. Um, and that's, that's kind of what that looks like. And, and there's different players. There. Well, I love everything you're, you're doing and describing. It's, it's really exciting to see this model really being uh, implemented. Thank you guys so much for taking the time today and love to keep track of uh, how it's going and growing over time. Um, as we kind of wrap up today, do you guys have any final thoughts to, to leave with the audience? If you guys want to find out more information about kind of what we're all about, a really good place to do that is propagate.org. It's kind of our educational hubs of website where we aggregate information and, and I write some of our own. And if you want to reach out to us directly, feel free. I mean, we're relatively open and we'd love to collaborate with folks who are both in the Hudson Valley region as well as elsewhere. We want to build the support to make agroforestry possible in the U.S. And that's what we're here to do. Yeah, the, the way we view it is it's uh, it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation. It's like everyone's in the band. That's how we approach this. So from that perspective and kind of exactly what Jeremy was saying here, we're more than happy to chat with everyone and kind of find ways where we can, we can add value to what you're currently working on and kind of find ways to collaborate and and, and frankly, have some fun along the way. <laughs> That's really a key point. You know, it's kind of regenerating the mind and then having some fun and, and space to, to do that. It's anti-entropy. It's anti-chaos. Right. And that, that's, that's empowering. Teamwork makes the dream work. So, <laughs> And David, we really appreciate you taking the time and, and kind of having this discussion with us. It's, this is one of the fun parts of, of, of the work when we're not out on farms, which is another very fun part of the work. Uh, we, we enjoy what we're doing, so we appreciate uh, all the work that you're doing and, and the energy you're bringing to the field. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I appreciate uh, you guys too. Well, um, I will put all the uh, URLs in the show notes and your guys' contact information, and we can talk afterwards. Um, I wanted to bring up PropagateVentures.com, which is the website I was looking at that I guess is more of your business site um, because it's got some great, uh, great information there as well. Thank you, guys. Have an excellent day. And uh, we will have to follow up sometime in the future uh, with how you're progressing and uh, new projects you're working on. You got it. We're looking forward to it. And that was Ethan, Jeremy, and Harry of Propagate Ventures. You can find more about on-farm investing in agroforestry at propagateventures.com. And if you'd like to know more about regenerative business and other related news, check out their sister site, propagate.org. You'll, of course, find links to those in the show notes. This is David's last interview that came from his trip to Regen 18. Would you like him to return to Regen 19 and bring you more about regenerative business? Let him know. David at thepermaculturepodcast.com Do you have any questions on regenerative business? Would you like to know more about anything covered in David's series? Or on any other episodes in the archives? If so, get in touch. Show at thepermaculturepodcast.com Call 717-827-6266 or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. This week and next, I'm recording the interviews for February and March. 
Some of those include Rob Avis of Verge Permaculture to talk about harvesting rainwater, Kirsten Lee Nielsen of Hostile Valley Living and what it takes to become a homesteader, and Zev Friedman about mutual aid societies. You can catch those in the upcoming weeks. Also, starting on January 28th and running through at least February 8th, is a giveaway for a copy of DIY Kombucha by Andrea Potter. Find that at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Through all that and until we meet again, spend each day bringing together your expertise and your vision of a beautiful future while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>